Hello, friends. This is your host, Alec Mohibian, with a little note before we begin this very special filthy Armenian adventure with the greatest rock and roll writer and thinker of all time, Griel Marcus. This episode is available for free on the free feed, and I hope you enjoy it. But I also hope you strongly consider being a mensch and subscribing to the show on Patreon or patreon.com slash filthy Armenian for only five bucks a month and availing yourself of over twice as many episodes, including the juiciest and most scandalous ones that are only available for subscribers. And most importantly, for supporting this project in cultural rejuvenation. Um, strongly consider it. Patreon.com slash filthy Armenian. It's worth it. It really is. And it'll keep the show ad free and it'll keep me alive. And it'll, you know, it'll 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 get you it'll get you into some form of paradise. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> I had a dream one night, April 25, 1973. In the dream, I am looking into a carny peep show machine wherein tiny shots of Elvis, Scotty Moore, and Bill Black flicker in and out of view. Naked, they are rehearsing their live act, kicking their legs in tandem like the rockets. Slowly, the camera moves in on Elvis's penis. It is an accurate dream. I look to see if Elvis is circumcised, and of course, he is not. In close-up, his member fills the screen. A message has been carved on his penis in block letters. Elvis live at the International Hotel Las Vegas. It reads... You are listening to Spiritual Boomer Adventures, and we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of that Greel Marcus dream. Going to build me log cabin on a mountain so high so I can see Willie as he goes on by. I am a spiritual boomer. I am a baby want boom boom. I too have dreamed the Elvis dream. I have probably made love to the same song my grandparents made love to, and that song was probably Elvis's Battle Hymn of the Republic or the B-side, Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. I live in the city built on rock and roll, and I have no intentions of ever moving out. The music is too good here. 
the spirit has room to play. And you never know who might come back to life at any moment, yourself included. I am also surrounded here by fascinating neighbors, such as Greel Marcus, who hosts me for an afternoon in this episode. Greel Marcus, the chief scholar, critic, and spiritual reporter of rock and roll. An ear witness from the birth to the life, to the death, and to the afterlife of the great popular art form that once shook the world and gave America a taste of her own atomic power. Greel Marcus is the author most famously of Mystery Train, Images of America and Rock and Roll Music, and Lipstick Traces, A Secret History of the 20th Century, and several other books, including Dead Elvis, Biography of Elvis After His Death, Bob Dylan by Greel Marcus, Invisible Republic, currently titled That Old Weird America, A History of Rock and Roll in Ten Songs, a book on The Doors, a book on Van Morrison, collections of his ongoing column Real Life Rock, and his most recent book is Folk Music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs. I've been reading these books for the last year, ever since I started planning this adventure, and this has been a deeply rewarding and often dramatically shocking experience. The writings of Greil Marcus have made me feel things I have not quite felt for a long time, such as patriotism. Rock and roll like everything that appears in textbooks, is fossilized by its own Cliff's Notes cliches. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, youth worship, cultural appropriation are the Cliff's Notes about rock and roll. But of course, the true story behind each of those labels is so much deeper, more complex, even paradoxical, as to turn them inside out. In the Elvis chapter of Mystery Train, Greel Marcus addresses the authorship of the song Hound Dog, which Elvis made a huge hit after Big Mama Thornton made it a smaller hit, a textbook example for special ed class of cultural appropriation. The textbook version, however, leaves out that the song was written by a couple of whiteys named Lieber and Stoller. And as Greel writes, quote... Hustling in Los Angeles in the early 50s, they wrote Hound Dog and promoted the song to Johnny Otis, a ruling R&B band leader who was actually a dark-skinned white man from Berkeley who many thought was black. Otis gave the song to Big Mama Thornton, who made it a number one hit in 1953. Elvis heard the record, changed the song completely, from the tempo to the words, and cut Thornton's version to shreds. Whites wrote it, a white made it a hit. And yet there is no denying Hound Dog is a black song, unthinkable outside the impulses of black music, and probably a rewrite of an old piece of juke joint fury that dated back far beyond the birth of any of these people. Can you pull justice out of that maze? What does Huck owe Jim, especially when Jim is really Huck in blackface and everyone smells loot? All you can say is this was Elvis's music because he made it his own. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, could I have your attention, please? Uh, I'd like to tell you that we're going to do a sad song for you. This song here is one of the saddest songs we've ever heard. It really tells a story, friends. 
Beautiful lyrics. It goes something like this. appropriation or cultural procreation. Tracing a path from Harmonica Frank and Robert Johnson and the mythical Stagger Lee to Elvis, Randy Newman, The Band, and Sly and the Family Stone, Mystery Train is a book that demonstrates how the entire invention of rock and roll was not just a creation of a musical genre, that became super popular and changed history and invented sexual intercourse sometime between Lady Chatterley's lover and the Beatles' first LP and incited political protests and scored the social experiments of the 60s and the hippies, etc. The mystery train hypothesis is that rock and roll was history. It was history itself. In action, as a creative force. Every rock star was a spiritual historian doing his own cover of the American dream. And then a cover of the cover. And then a cover of the cover of the cover until death do us part. Quote, It is a sure sign that a culture has reached a dead end when it is no longer intrigued by its myths, when they lose their power to excite, amuse, and renew all who are a part of those myths, when those myths just bore the hell out of everyone. But Elvis has dissolved into a presentation of his myth, and so has his music. History without myth is surely a wasteland, but myths are compelling only when they are at odds with history. When they replace the need to make history, they too are a dead end and merely smug. Elvis's performance of his myth is so satisfying to his audience that he is left with no musical identity whatsoever, and thus he has no way to define himself or his audience, except to expand himself and his audience. Elvis is a man whose task it is to dramatize the fact of his existence. He does not have to create something new or try and fail, and thus test the worth of his existence or the worth of his audience. End quote. Already in 1975, it was clear that rock and roll was not a music about youth, but about being a thousand years old. And if it was a soundtrack to sex, it was equally about the curse of impotence and the mystery train that started with the neo-ancient blues of the very young Robert Johnson had already come full circle. You ain't nothing but a hound. Mystery Train is a short book, but like Walt Whitman, it is large and contains multi-dudes. I spent over three hours on the Bistro Californium podcast discussing almost only two of those dudes, 
Robert Johnson and Randy Newman. And I have to read a passage about Randy Newman because it's too relevant to the FAA universe to leave out, so I'll do that now. Quote, As an American artist, Newman represents some kind of opening up of the classic archetype of the keeper of the American imagination. And this too has a lot to do with the particular freedoms of Los Angeles. Most American critics, Nathaniel Hawthorne, say, throw up all sorts of horror and pretend they do so only to condemn it. If Nathaniel West, through his transplanted Easterner hero Todd Hackett, admitted complicity in the L.A. nightmare, he had to satisfy the guilt such a confession produced by destroying the city in a private apocalypse. Since Newman takes the moral shapelessness of his hometown as a given, such fantasies would be ridiculously melodramatic for him. Like the Beach Boys, Newman builds freedom out of what he's got. His humor is his version of the Beach Boys' open naivete. Newman laughs all around his world, never at it. He is too at home in the place to feel guilty about it. And anyway, he is a rock and roll singer, and such attitudes are not in the rock and roll style. They would take off the cold Real slow They would take off the shoes Yeah, I'd take the shoes They would take off the dress The point is that everyone should read Mystery Train and Griel's other books and listen. Read and listen. Listen to the author listening to the songs. And then listen to the songs. Listen to the singer listening in the songs. Listen to the folk he's listening to. The famous or forgotten songs he's reviving and making his own. Because everything worth listening to is a cover of some kind. Because if you're not defining yourself against a master or a history, you can't be original. You can't be new when everything is new to you, because you don't know where reality ends and where you begin. Listen to the endlessly dramatic quest to believe the emotion that is being performed and to believe in the country that is being critiqued, the ideals that are falling short, the ecstasy that is doomed. Listen to the world being exposed and the desire to expose it. Consider that this music invented its own national ideal, the ideal of the band. The concept of a band, being in a band, worshipping a band, living and dying for a band, where it's not just about the, the front man. This mythological entity, this dream communion known as the band. Consider the loneliness that would give rise to such an ideal. Listen to the bands. 
Listen to the breakups. Listen to the tragic arc. Almost every one of those beloved bands has undergone. You can rock solo, but you can only roll with a band. Consider that the longest living creating rock and roll artist is the individual, the most infinitely individual, Bob Dylan, and that he made his most historically significant transformation in communion with a band known for fusing every possible historical sound of American music. A band whose big second album was going to be called America, but instead was just named after the band itself, which was called The Band. Listen to Bob Dylan and the band being violently heckled and called Judas by the hippies, the purists, the crowd for plugging in their folk guitars to electricity, choosing electric life over acoustic death. And then disappearing from the scene, just as the dream of the 60s goes to hell, and the curtains go down for several years in America. And as I saunter into the home of Greel Marcus in the city built on rock and roll, listen to the story of that cultural intermission, as told in his book Invisible Republic, about the making of the basement tapes where Bob Dylan and the band gather in a house called The Big Pink, dust off the anthology of old folk songs from the 20s and 30s, and begin to experiment with resurrection, on the record but off the record, bootlegging a lost republic back to life. Quote, As a nation at war both at home and abroad, the USA was a faith and a riddle in 1967, Washington's monument facing Lincoln's Sphinx. The country was a threat and a plea, a church and a scaffold. It took faith to solve the riddle. In the basement, you could believe in the future only if you could believe in the past, and you could believe in the past only if you could touch it, mold it, like the clay from which the past had molded you, change it. You could believe in the past only if you could reenact it. What's the matter with me? I don't have much to say. Daylight sneaking through the window and I'm still in this old night cafe. Walking to and fro beneath the moon Out to where the trucks are rolling slow To sit down on this bank of sand And watch the river flow Wish I was back in the city Instead of this old bank of sand Sun beating down over the chimney tops and the one I love so close at hand. If I had wings and I could fly, I know where I would go. But right now I just sit here so contentedly and watch the river flow. People 
disagreeing on just about everything, yeah. Makes you stop and wonder why. Why only yesterday I saw somebody on the street who just couldn't help but cry. Oh, but this old river keeps on rolling, though. No matter what gets in the way and which way the wind does blow. And as long as it does, I just sit here and watch the river flow. than um, it ought to be, but there's nothing I can do about it except talk through it. It sounds perfect to me. That's um, good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wanted just to... This is all about capturing... What I've been doing with this podcast is the reason I tend to strive to do it in person is to capture kind of the conversations organically. Um, and the the people I've been speaking to in their natural element, um, and I've been doing it for the last year as a sort of uh, internal war against the end of the world <laughs> and the and the freezing of all public life and the disconnect the, the great disconnect from seemingly the you know what what seems to be a kind of the natural flowing river of life in normal times, um, and then what seems to dry up in in this period, uh, this pandemic period. That's kind of been my my impetus um, for when I started doing this. And I want to say first, I I I've been reading your work since. March uh, since right after I, I I met David and we started I emailed and and you know when we first had contact maybe it was April, um, and the first I started with Mystery Train, um, and then on through uh, everything but 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 I I didn't I, could, I didn't complete Lipstick Traces because I felt like the 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 substance of Mystery Train in your rock and roll books was more was so personal to me. Because you might be the only person in the world I can discuss my my musical tastes with, really, with any depth. I don't know if there's anyone it's else. Hard to believe. Well, I'm sure there's somebody out there, but there's no one really my age or or younger or even close that I can discuss Etta James in depth with. Mm-hmm. Do you know anyone? <laughs> Do you know any someone who knows why my religion is that Etta James is better than Beyonce? That's my entire relig- my entire religious faith can be described in that way. And your chapter in ten songs. Well, there's a there's a book written by a young writer whose name I'll remember. First name is Jared, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the book is a novel called I Hate the Internet, and it, it's an absolutely wonderful novel. Um, it's incredibly funny. It's very cruel and and heartbreaking. Um, and it, it, 
it has a plot, it has, you know, things go on, but also has all kinds of philosophical ruminations. And one is that Etta James singing, I want to go blind, I'd rather go blind, is God. You know? Really? And that's really all you need to know. Um, that is the quintessence of um, if, if God created human beings, this is what God meant to create. This is it. This is as far as it goes. This is the perfection. Um, and it, it's, and it's, you know, on the page you say, of course, right. Not necessarily that it's out of James, it can be whoever you like, but that that is a way of understanding um, the meaning of life and, um, and its value. It's just great. And this guy, well, I think this book came out about five years ago, and he was in his 20s, so he's a young guy. So I'll have to find him then. I'll have to find him and talk to him. Let me just well, I'll make get, get his name. Because it's, like I said, it's called I Hate the Internet. I feel like I've heard of it, but vaguely. Oh, look, it's uh, it's the cuckoo. Mm-hmm. Who, I, yeah. I, thought he only, I thought he only sings on the 4th of July. No. I said Jared. Well, it's Jarrett. J-A-R-E-T-T-K-O-B-E-K. Have you met him? I haven't met him. We corresponded. After I read the book, and I looked him up and wrote to him. I'll find. I'll have to find him. Um, I'd love to make the that that contact and read the book because, well, I've seen her. F- I saw her five times, I guess, probably. Um, and really, how old are you? I'm 37. Mm-hmm. I'm old enough to be able. I saw her for the first time in UC Santa Barbara when I was a freshman. And then I, the best show of hers that I caught was at the House of Blues. In, I'm, I live in, I'm from L.A., born mm-hmm. and raised. And she's an L.A. girl, which I learned only by, from your book. I didn't know that she was originally from L.A., um, which makes me feel good. Was she originally from L.A. or from here? I mean, she went to high school in San Francisco. She, I, let me check. I'll, I brought the book just in case. Um... I think in the she's definitely a California person. Yeah, and was all was involved in the rhythm and blues world in L.A. with Jesse Belvin and other people. She was born in L.A. and at fifteen, living in San Francisco. Yeah, right. She formed the vocal trio with Johnny Otis. Yeah. Yeah. So, so who knows, if, I guess we don't know exactly when she came up here, but I know she ended up in Riverside in her last years because um, she talked about it. And this, she kind of had a revival in, when I started watching her because she made that album called Blues to the Bone. Do you remember that album? Yeah. Did you like that album? I, the that I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> well, she had, if the album was basically, you know, very... Uh, very obvious blues standards like Got My Mojo Working, Don't Start Me to Talking. Those were the kind of the throwaways on the album. She also did Smoke Sack Lightning. She did uh, uh, the, 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 the Sky is Crying. She did, um, it was kind of like a, like the, the, the most 
famous kind of Chicago blues numbers mm-hmm. in her own from a but from a female perspective kind of thing. Um, and I remember being really, you know, as a young person who I was a major blues person in my teens. Um, I was converted by K Jazz Radio Station in LA in from Long Beach eighty eight point one. They had that blues uh, thing on the weekends, and so I got all I nerded out big time in a very cliched. Can a blue man sing the whites sort of way, mm-hmm. um, and and so I to me this was a re- revelation and especially there was a song in which there, my favorite song on the album is I mean she's first of all she's holding her own with all the men who sang these songs and she's kind of she's kind of giving it she's to me she's both masculine and feminine she's old she's young and she's everything all at the same time that's what I'm so impressed with with Etta James whereas Beyonce the kind of her nemesis her nemesis in this world is Beyonce is a a grand opening at a Mace at a new Macy's or something Beyonce is a she's she's ultimately Destiny's child something that only appeals to 12 year old girls in my view and those who retain the 12 year old girl point of view on life um, but Etta James appeals to men. I feel like there's a big difference here. I don't. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, there, there are plenty of middle-aged or older women, who, and particularly black women, who follow Beyonce and look, you know look to her. Um, and I know you know she, because of her money, and because of her. Um, I don't, arrogance isn't the right word. Well, her success, maybe? Well, her success, but there's something bullying about her that I have always disliked. Um, it's in her dancing, it's in her self-presentation, it's in her her whole Earth Mother shtick. Um, you know, goddess of, of all creation. I mean, there's certain there's certain people who you cannot speak ill of in the New York Times. I mean, yeah. you know, they have a style sheet. They have the way people are supposed to address certain topics. Um, and over the last couple of years it's become evident that you're no longer allowed to use the word slave. You have to use the term enslaved person mm. because slave uh, implies identity. That's, that's who this person is, where enslaved person is a status um, that could change. Right. And so it doesn't actually speak to the identity of the person who is enslaved, mm-hmm. which is just an absurd euphemism because slavery was not a status and it was not meant to it was not like being an indentured servant you you know spend a number of years indentured and then you achieve your uh, autonomy and can go out in the world and um, you know make your own life um, slavery was completely an identity it was a totalitarian identity meant to destroy any identity that was brought to it. Um, 
And you cannot speak ill in the pages in the New York Times of a number of people, Patti Smith, Beyonce, Christopher Hitchens, there are a few others. Oh, have they given Christopher Hitchens that uh, protection? Oh, that was true for a long time. I didn't know that. Even before he died. Um, Christopher Hitchens was, you know, he was he was a clubby person, and he um, he joined other people's clubs, and and other people joined his club. I don't mean there was an actual place. In, you knock on the door, but right. well, anywhere know. that served liquor was, I think, a type of place you might. No, I just mean a club. <laughs> you know, you you become his his friend, his confidant. There, are so many friends of mine who you know just worshipped him uh, and just thought he was you know the greatest person ever born. Uh, when I always thought he was really a scumbag. But um, <laughs> you, you did you have any? Uh, direct uh, quarrels with him? No. I mean, I wrote a lot of nasty things about him, and he wrote some nasty things about me. But um, we met a couple of times and, you know, like shook hands and gave each other a look saying, okay, that's it. We don't need to talk to each other. And didn't. What was the topic of the nasty things? Was it post 9-11 or pre-9-11 nasty things? I mean, was it about music or was it about politics? Uh, I think uh, there were a few things before 9-11, but most of the most vicious things I wrote about him were after 9-11, about things he had written mm-hmm. about, 9/11, about 9-11, which I felt were disgraceful. And, and preening. I mean, Christopher Hitchens was, um, his, his subject was self-congratulation, and his style was self-promotion. And I find both of those qualities just dis- disgusting in a writer. Do you find it disgusting? Do you find, okay, so where does that put you uh, with someone I admire a lot, Camille Paglia, whom you quote from time to time. I mean, I've seen her appear in your pages, right, just, you know, without any expectation. Um, she's somebody who, she quarreled with Christopher Hitchens quite a bit, actually, at least from the, the few, the, the minimal wordage between them, verbiage between them was bad. Um, but she's also a self-promote, you know, she's definitely not afraid to make herself a subject and to make, and to promote herself, but it seems to be in service of a a very large cause. It does? What's the cause? Western culture. No, it isn't. Look, (laughs) um, when I read Sexual Persona, I was working on Lipstick Traces. I don't remember exactly when it came out, maybe 87, 86, but um, whenever it was, I, I read that book and I thought, here's a kindred spirit. You know, here's someone who's working in in the same area I'm working. And um, really, I felt, you know, this is someone I could talk to. So I wrote her um, about her book, and I reviewed it. I wrote a pretty good piece about it, and wrote her, and we started up um, a very, very active correspondence. 
and these are in the days of handwritten letters, you know, um, in the 80s. Not for everybody, but for me and for her. Well, I used a typewriter. She scribbled. Um, and she was just, you know, she was, she's a natural-born celebrity, you know. She was thrilled by the reception her book got. Everything, everything good it got, it deserved. I mean, it's really a brave book and so much fun to read, so alive. Yeah. And then, um, and, and she becomes a literary celebrity quite quickly and she just takes to it, you know. Um, she loves it, she has fun with it, it, it energizes her voice. And then she publishes a second book, which is a collection of essays. Sex, Art, and American yeah. Culture, if I remember correctly. Yeah, correct, yeah. And, you know, fine. And, and at that time, when that book came out, she was writing me, you know, I'm writing a piece that's going to absolutely blow academia to pieces. You know, she just John had this... Bonds and Corporate Raiders is probably the one. I don't know. She, she was just full of ambition. And then you get to the end of this book, Sex, Art, and American Culture, and there is a timeline of her celebrity. Um, you know, like sexual persona published, first reviewed, first discussed on television, and, and it just goes on like this for, I don't know, two, three pages. Um, and you realize that's what it's about for her at this point. It's celebrity. What has she done six since? What is her pursuit of this project? The you know the true nature of Western civilization. Well, she has she. I mean, I think that she has obviously been ever since then. She hasn't written that second volume that we we kept being promised of sexual persona, or at least she never released it. Um, she said that she kind of soured too much on popular culture to release it. I thought that her. I think that her glittering images, and I think that her um, her provocations and the totality of her commentary wherever it appears, which is not a good art, which is obviously a dangerous thing to cling to, but I do believe that her her kind of lingering presence and also her mysterious withdrawal from the limelight. I mean, she did withdraw almost completely around the year two thousand, except for a few salon, you know, stints for a few months at a time, and then she'd withdraw again for years. I mean, she really receded from the, from the limelight um, in a way that most people who I think are obsessed with their celebrity completely do not tend Hi. to do. Hi, Hello. Izzy. Hi, Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Oh, this is a bit wet. Okay. Like yeah. yeah, I'll leave her in for a while. <laughs> okay. Thanks. All right. Izzy, come here. Yeah, is a she. She thinks anyone who comes to the house came to see her. Oh well, that's uh, fair enough. You know, she's like she has that Polya spirit, uh, uh, <laughs> that Polya element. But I mean, I, I I'm just saying her. she had a great project. I don't think you don't she, think she followed through. No. Have you kept maintained correspondence with her? No, we had a real falling out. Oh, I see. Um, when. You know, part of it was political. Part of it was it was her conservative politics, um, and part of it was, 
she she was very contemptuous of lipstick traces, which didn't make me angry, but it didn't make me happy. Well, so, of course. <laughs> um, and you know our engagement sort of tailed off from there. I remember a wonderful letter she wrote me about going to a Madonna concert and slugging the guy behind her who was being obnoxious. It was very funny. I just for I just was purchased a ticket to the her for her tour Madonna's tour. I'm not a Madonna person because I'm not familiar. It's she's a little new for for my for me. But I but I I have no aversion to her as I do say to Beyonce, and I've appreciated some of the songs that have made it to my consciousness. And my friends are absolute my gay friends specifically are fanatics about her. And I've enjoyed Madonna Paglia's lifelong flirt, uh, strange flirtation with her and negging of her for the sake of someone named Daniela Mercury. I don't know if you felt, remember that particular storyline. No. Um, there was a time when Paglia was writing about how Madonna had lost it and, and the real diva of the world is some random Brazilian... <laughs> pop singer named Daniela Mercury mm-hmm. and it was quite funny thing to, to, to observe but anyway um, it's, I will be I'll, I'll, I'll be experiencing Madonna for the first time ever when she comes to LA in September with this greatest hits well we saw her in the 80s and it was such a great show it was breathtaking where do you I haven't seen you write too much about Madonna maybe just because I haven't, didn't search it out specifically do what tradition, if any, do you view Madonna as having uh, resurrected? Or is it something completely from scratch? Because one of the themes that comes through in your book, uh, I mean, both from the, the punk rock being the Dadaist resurrection and, and rock and roll, of course, being the, um, the, folk, the resurrection of, the, of the, the, uh, the folk world of, that was completely lost. Um, until it was found, does it, is there a similar thing happening with Madonna, or is this a different kind of lab experiment? Uh, I don't know. I mean, this is someone who got involved with music people, found her own music, had her own style. Uh, I think there's a lot of Debbie Harry in her in the beginning, uh, and that's just a couple of years before she steps out. You know, um, I mean, if you wanted to to answer that question, you could talk about girl groups in the fifties. Um, you could talk about Frank Sinatra. You could talk about um, Ginger Rogers, or is she not good enough compared to Fred Astaire to deserve a sure Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers? You know, sure. But I, I, you know, it's like when Prince. She and Prince sort of emerged simultaneously, at least that's how I remember it and experienced it. And maybe Prince a little before, but you know, they both came to my attention pretty much at the same time. And I just thought, you know, their personalities were so strong. Their musical personalities, their, you know, who they were, that they just, seemed, uh, you know, their own genre, right. their own, their own, um, 
their own world. They had style. They didn't just have um, a genre to fit into. Right. And Jerry Lee Lewis liked to say there, there were only four stylists. You know, everybody else was an imitator. Everybody else was part of a tradition, essentially. And he said, but there are only four stylists. There's Al Jolson and Hank Williams. I'm trying to think of the third. Jimmy Rogers, Jimmy Rogers and him. And Jeremy Lewis. And that was it. <laughs> I love Jimmy Rogers. I, I love the blue yodel. I, lo uh, I could listen to it sure. all day long. And I was a bit thrilled when I discovered, um, the first time I discovered that Howlin' Wolf learned his howl from Jimmy Rogers was actually at a James Hammond Jr. concert that he gave at McCabe's Guitar Shop where he told, he said that Howlin' Wolf told him that, and you've, you've, I think you've, you've mentioned it in your book, um, in your book in, in Invisible Republic, um, that he learned how to, he learned his, his howl from Jimmy Rogers. Well, there's a much better story. Oh, okay. And it came out only a couple of years ago. And it was with an interview that Howlin' Wolf was doing either with Chris Strockwitz of our Hooli Records or people involved with Chris Strockwitz, working with him. Chris Strockwitz um, is from, where is he from? He's from Eastern Europe. I don't know if it's Poland or Czechoslovakia or what. I could look it up. Um, and he came to the United States to record music that he loved. And he went through the South, he recorded a lot of Norteño music, a lot of blues, uh, a lot of arcane black Southern traditions that other people didn't know about or didn't care about, a lot of Tex-Mex music. Um, started putting them out on his own label, Arhuli. And then for you know many, many years, has run Down Home Records in El Cerrito, which is just the center for this kind of music. Is that near here, or is that no. El Cerrito's El Cerrito? Yeah, El Cerrito, but it's not far from here. It's, okay. you know, 25 minutes or something oh, like okay. that. Oh, okay. Down Home Records. Yeah, on, it's on San Pablo, and it's, um, it's a dangerous place. I used to take people there and they wouldn't get out for less than a hundred, two hundred dollars. Just so much stuff they wanted and had never seen before, had never realized was actually available. Anyway, Helen Wolf is giving this interview sometime in the 60s, I guess, and he's talking about how when he was a little boy, when he was, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, Jimmy Rogers would come to the plantation where um, he lived, where his family lived and worked, and they would talk. And Jimmy Rogers would, you know, come out of the house of the white people he was visiting and say, you know, you're a good-looking kid, or you're, you know, you, you really work hard, or he would give him a compliment. And Helen Wolf would say, "Well, thank you, sir," and, and um, you know they would talk, and and 
and it wasn't about music. It was just Jimmy Rogers saying, I think you're special. I think you're going to do great things. And Helen Wolf saying, well, I love to hear you sing. And this is incredible. You know, Helen Wolf and Jimmy Rogers meeting, you know, um, too good to be true. And I believe every word of it. I do too. Helen Wolf said, he told me I was a good boy. And that clearly meant so much to him. And this, the year in this story is, is how old is Wolf in the story? Do we know? I think, he, you know, he's a kid. He's, he's seven kid. or eight. Oh shit! No, so early. Yeah. Early. So touched. So 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 touched by the. Uh, well, you know, the hands touch, and they, the story passes, gets passed on. It does. And I, of course, adore Holland Wolf. I mean, that's not a. I I I didn't. I especially in when I started listening to you know past the obvious hits and then into stuff like Monin Low Monin, one of his early ones. And, and where he's like in a real guttural condition. It's either moaning at midnight or moaning in the moonlight, I forget. Yeah, I think it's midnight, moaning at midnight. Yeah. And then the one about the uh, Natchez, the, 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 uh, the burning. Natchez burning. The Natchez burning, that's another one that, uh, that, that echoes in, in me from time to time, no matter how, much, how, 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 I, how long it's been since I've heard since I've heard it. Some of his improvisations are you know, like house rock and blues are just, you know, they take your breath away. And they're just jamming, you know, they're just making a song up out of nothing. Um, I mean, incredible. that's what, you know, that's what appealed to me about, the, about these uh, blues souls when I was in my teens. I did not have, it wasn't, I was not, you know, everyone, my, all my peers were into hip hop because I was my, I came, I came of age right as Eminem hit it big, right? At, um, I mean, I missed the, obviously the Tupac and that thing was a little bit earlier, but everything, all boys my age were about hip hop mm -hmm. and all girls were about Destiny's, you know, that kind of thing. My sister, a few couple years younger than I was all about Destiny's Child and uh, the, the boy bands and the girl bands and whatever, what's up, whatever. I hated all of that myself. And I hated rap. I didn't see, I didn't touch me at all. Uh, it's only in recent years that I've been gradually found my way back, you know. It's, a sl it's still a process. I, need, I still need a great deal of indoctrination before I can, um, I can, I can move to it organically. Um, but I'm open to such indoctrination. Um, but but the the idea that these people and, and and to me they all they all registered as old to me even if they were young when they're singing I mean Helen Wolf sounds like he's a thousand years old to me no matter sure no, 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 <laughs> no matter the cut and to me this was so inspiring despite the despite the content or the subject matter being too too gloomy and certainly not. Um, physically comprehensible to a healthy person in his teens for whom there is no death except as an idea for whom there is the, for whom the the pains of which they're singing are not are not directly the pains which I know mm -hmm. but for, but there is seems to be this magical thing happening where sorrow becomes joy and and also you can sing forever and that's kind of what 
hooked me to the whole genre and to the whole the whole thing. Um, so in, in every every story I hear, it's some iteration of this of this tale, I guess, of this fairy tale, this blues fairy tale. Sure, I think we all have our own versions, you know, because you're discovering something. If you're a white middle class person, certainly you're discovering something that, you know, by all rights you you never should know about, you know, yeah. and and you're discovering a different world and a different way of life, and yet somehow you've made this what feels like an instant overwhelming connection, you know, this this speaks to me and it tells me what the world looks like and I can understand this and it just makes sense. Um, and I remember um, Sam Charters, who was an early writer on the blues, he once said that only a black man in Mississippi in the 1920s or 30s could possibly understand what Sunhouse meant when he sang My Black Mama's Face Shines Like the Sun. And I, I just thought that was one of the most Philistine things I'd ever read, even in the moment. Um, and I thought, what in the world did, you know, he, he He's putting up boundaries. He's saying only, you know, certain kind of people can understand certain kinds of culture, and and other people are forever walled off, and as if it's it's theft just to listen, right? You know, not to imitate, not even to write about, but just to listen, just to love. Is, love is theft. Is, is wrong, and when I first read that sentence, which obviously I've never forgotten, because it still bothers me, I immediately pictured a black woman in the sun and her face shining like the sun. I could see it. I could see it too. I had an image in my mind and I, I could, and it was, you know, it was this wonderful, glowing, magical image. And I could say, God, I'd want to sing about that too, you know, if I was looking at this. So, um, yeah, we, everybody has their story of discovering something that isn't on their ordinary path. But this, this idea, I want, to, I want to ask you what, when you discovered the blues for yourself, but, before, but while we're on the topic... Of this idea of erecting boundaries and and you know in a weird way um, basically wrapping red tape around a certain artistic experiences, which is to me an anti-artistic uh, cultural practice, but it seems to have completely taken off in the last you know decade or so, where. Uh, Everything is um, everything has been declared to be appropriation, largely by people who have no understanding of the, of what they're talking about and 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 the art like the art that they've been ghettoizing, and in, in, in purely out of it for ideological reasons. Uh, I mean, has this has this bothered you as much as it's bothered me in, in its recent in its recent iterations? Well, I, I remember when I was writing 
Mystery Train. And I had watched uh, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman and Sounder, the, these two movies. One was, a, I think, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, I think, was um, a TV movie, and Sounder was a theatrical movie. But in any case, I wanted to write about them both. And I wanted to write about them in the Robert Johnson chapter in Mystery Train. But there was there was something in both of them that was so painful and so awful and and so cruel that the characters here had were experiencing, were acting out. Um, even though I think one of those, they were both based on books, and one was based on a book by a right, a white writer, I think. But I didn't know that at the time. Anyway, I thought, do I have a right to write about this? I really struggled with that. I felt that, um, you know, that I was stealing, that 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 I was taking some, I would be taking someone else's story by writing about it. I, I wasn't using the word appropriation, you know, it was a long time ago, it was in the early 70s. Um, and finally I just said, fuck it, I want to write about this. So, I'm, so I did, you know. Uh, and whether what I wrote was worth it or not is another question, but I, it was just, worth it. I just felt, uh, you know, I have to do this. I can't I can't um, just write about, um, you know, middle-class Jewish-American stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't even, I, you know, I don't think of myself that way. That wasn't the life I lived, but it's certainly my background. Right. So some people should say, we should just write about that. And I'd say, I don't, I don't know anything about it, you know. Well, stick... You know, hate that phrase. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Yeah, that's right? the loser phrase of all time. Um, so sure, I know what you mean, but on the other hand, when I started listening to country blues from the twenties and thirties, which I did in January nineteen seventy, and just became an obsession. It's basically all I listened to for the next year. I just. I just couldn't believe how directly this spoke to me and how fascinating it was and how you know different it was and how alive and how transparent and why am I understanding this you know why is this moving me so much um, why is it so different from anything I've ever encountered encountered how could I how could I be so lucky you know, and of course it's an old story. Everybody has their version, going back to John Hammond, going back to my own father, and the Lead Belly records that he listened to in the 30s, you know, um, which, which I didn't know at the time. Did John Hammond Sr., you mean? Or is, yeah, yes. John Hammond what was Sr. His, what was his uh, first, I know he discovered, well, he has his list of discoveries is as long as Leviticus and it goes back to Billie Holiday and so so on. Did he have a, is there a famous story of him 
kind of striking. No, I don't. If, if there's an origin story for John Hammond, sorry, no, I don't know it. Um, I mean, he's one of these figures that fascinates me just because of how how he had a hand in everyone from Billie Holiday to the revival to to revival of one of my favorites, Alberta Hunter. Mm-hmm. Well, he you know he's writing for the new masses in the '30s um, under a pseudonym, um, Paul Johnson, maybe. But in any case, funny he, pseudonym. What funny pseudonym? Yeah. <laughs> um, He's writing about jazz and he's writing about blues, and he writes this, you know, now famous um, item in, in his music column in the New Masses about Robert Johnson <clears throat> and how he's the star of Hot Springs, Arkansas. God knows where that came from. Um, but that he makes Lead Belly sound like a poseur, mm-hmm. which is a radical thing to say. In 1930, um, you know, 30, 36 or 37. When Lead Belly is the voice of the left kind of thing at the time. Yeah, yeah. So you're attacking, you're attacking, uh, you know, a leftist icon in the new masses in favor of Robert Johnson. You don't, you know, I don't think record producers do such things anymore. (laughs) I don't think they're a record, I don't know that any record producers are out there writing columns and under pseudonyms for leftist magazines or any magazines and declaring, uh, uh, you know, discovering voices in the wilderness to supplant the ones that everyone is overrating. Well, you know, uh, John Hammond had his finger in many, many different pots. And as a record producer, which I, maybe he wasn't at that time, um, you know, you could think, well, he's promoting Robert Johnson because he wants to sign him yeah. and, um, you know, put his records out. Well, hey, you know, whatever, you know, it's not the prop, the, the, you can't throw all capitalism out with the, with everything. They, these profit motives have sometimes bear fruit. Well, I think that's what the popular music industry has always been about. And that's what's good about it. And that's, you know, without rapacious, Laissez-faire capitalism, with payoffs and bribes and payola and everything else—you know—the culture we live in wouldn't exist. Yeah. No, I don't gainsay that. No, it's true. Um, you think the Ministry of Art and Culture would 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 know good stuff when they found it? No. It would have to go through five different committees. It would be the, it would be the ultimate five different committees, and it would ultimately be the cousins of whoever are in power mm-hmm. get the nod. I mean, I know how this stuff works in places where that stuff is where the, where that's the way it goes. Um, the the uh, so what was your was that your first was nineteen seventy country blues your discovery of the blues or was there something prior to that in for you personally? No, it was right after Altamont, which was the ugliest day of my whole life. I mean, it was up until then when I was only 24 years old, and it's still the ugliest day I've ever experienced. Yeah, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. And, And it just made me sick. 
and I didn't want to listen to rock and roll anymore. Can I, you just, for the sake of those listening, so that uh, adult, the, can you set the scene of what Altamont, what that day was? Yeah, I mean, the Rolling Stones are playing a free concert, and everybody is going, and it's at this racetrack that nobody's ever heard of between here and Tracy in the Central Valley. And it's um, Altamont is Altamont Pass. It's way, way up in the hills. Um, and it's, it's a very, you know, tremendously desolate area. And particularly in December, um, when all the grass has died and everything is, is brown and there's no sign of life, um, it's even more desolate. And so everybody is going to this place where they've never been, which turns out to be this sort of bowl in the hills, um, a kind of natural amphitheater. And um, you, you get there, and there are, you know, two, three hundred thousand people there. We got there very early and sat right in the front, in front of the stage, as people then, you know, piled in behind us. And I'd been to I'd been to Woodstock, um, you know, not very long before, whenever it was Woodstock, I guess it was August, and um, so you you know four or five months before, where um, there really was a good feeling. People were excited. People were thrilled by the size of the crowd, either to be part of the crowd or if you were a musician to be playing for this unbelievably vast assemblage. You know, you look out from the stage and you couldn't see the end of it. You're um, playing for the world. Yeah. It's what it felt like. It must have felt like. Um, and, and, and right off the bat, you know, at Altamont, people were unfriendly, they were selfish, they were territorial, you know, you're, you're, you know, get out of my space. What are you doing here? Get out of there. And everything was unpleasant and ugly right off the start. And then, um, I guess Santana starts playing and this huge Mexican-American guy uh, strips off all his clothes and starts dancing right in front of the stage. Lovely. And, you know, he's, he's incredibly corpulent and, you know, awful looking. But he wasn't really dancing. What he was doing was using uh, movements as an excuse to stomp people. And he was going around tr stomping on people, oh. kicking people. Um, and the Hells Angels jump off the stage and they're carrying these uh, weighted pool cues, pool cues with, with lead in the handle, and they start beating the shit out of him. And I'm like 10 feet away watching this, and they're just, you know, massacring him. And, and finally they drag him off unconscious behind the stage. And when this happens, you know, everybody stands up and moves back. Yeah, and when this happens, you know, everybody uh, immediately stands up and pulls back away from the violence. 
and lots of people were holding up peace signs, you know, like this, mm -hmm. which struck me as the most pathetic thing I'd ever seen, you know, as if this is really going to dissuade Hell's Angels, which I was very familiar with from anti-war marches they had attacked that I'd been on, you know, we saw the Hell's Angels for at least a little bit of what they were, they are far more evil than we knew, but we, you know, had experience with them. And in fact, when we heard that they were, had been hired to provide security at Altamont, thanks to the Grateful Dead, um, that's when I told my wife, who was nine months pregnant, that she couldn't go, that there might be trouble, and, she, you know, she couldn't go. She had to stay home because she was planning to go. She loved the Rolling Stones. She wanted to see the show. Um, anyway, so as soon as the Hells Angels drag this guy off, the crowd reforms, and I'm still standing up. I'm standing up, in fact, on one leg because the crowd, you know, reformed itself so quickly and I'm standing on a patch of ground as big as one foot, and absolutely nobody would move over six inches oh to let me sit down again. So I'm standing there on one foot, you know, trying to keep my balance. And finally, uh, people lifted me up and, and um, pushed me onto the stage. And I went off the stage, and I went backstage, and you know, got back onto my own two feet again, um, and never went back to the front of the crowd for the rest of the day. That's just indicative of the mood of the place. I mean, I saw you know far worse things happen. Uh, there was a, a naked woman who kept running up to men and rubbing against them and they'd say hey baby you want to fuck and she'd start screaming and run off in another direction and grab some other guy and uh you know you people began to talk about who's who's gonna get killed someone's gonna get killed here today who's it gonna be what's gonna happen that was just the feeling uh among everybody that i was talking to and later um, when it was dark and when it was really cold, I saw backstage, I saw the, um, you know, the naked fat man and the naked woman, and they were both wandering around backstage in, in a stupor. And the, and the fat man had all of his teeth knocked out, and his, his face was just a mask of blood, and blood had dripped down his chest and he was still just walking around naked. And the woman um, had been beaten up. She had bruises, she was, her face was bleeding, and she was still naked. She had a blanket that someone had given her, and she was holding onto it, and it was trailing behind her as she walked. She was clearly too out of it, you know, to put it over herself, you know, if not to, cover her nakedness just to, you know, ward off the cold. It was horrible, just awful. And I ended up, uh, and, and 
I was standing on the stage while the Rolling Stones were playing and every few minutes there would be roars of terror. Sorry. There would be roars of terror coming from the audience. I couldn't see what was going on. I was at the back of the... Jesus Christ. Hello. Nobody you want to talk to. Um, I, I it's like these ululations, ah, like that. Yeah. And leave me alone. Don't call back again. Um, And um, it was just horrible. It was terrifying. I had no idea what was going on. I could hear Mick Jagger saying, doing his equivalent of raising the peace sign, you know, brothers and sisters, can't we all get along? I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, this is so terrible. So I turned around, I got off the stage, I climbed down off the stage, and I started walking up the hill to my car. And, um, what the fuck? Why is this guy so obsessed with the... Yes, I, I received the charge on my I don't know what you're talking about. Um, Well, it could be that you subscribed to a Substack account, that you bought a paid subscription to a Substack account. Otherwise, I have no idea what it might be. Yeah, yeah, okay, this is Greel. I just, you know, thought it was some sort of automated call, so I wasn't picking up. But now we know what's what. Thank you for subscribing. I hope it's worth the money. Okay. That's weird. I didn't know you had a Substack. I started writing for them, or started writing again. When I got sick last January, um, about a month ago, a little, a little more than a month ago, I mean a year ago, um, I was just about to start moving my writing, which really meant my real-life rock column, from the Los Angeles Review of Books to Substack. I'd read in the paper, there was a story about Substack in the New York Times business section, mm -hmm. And they quoted a person named Dan Stone who was working with writers and what it was all about and stuff like that. I knew Dan. I'd worked with him in the past. So I called him up and I said, you know, I'd like to do this. This sounds like something I'd really like. And so I was 
just about to do it when I got sick. And I got so sick, I immediately lost the ability to focus and concentrate. And I had no stamina. And I couldn't write. I didn't write anything for 10 months except on my phone. Um, and um, finally, I got out of the hospital at the end of August. And finally, uh, in late November, I felt I was ready to, to start, you know, to do it. So I started in December 1st, and I've been writing, you know, more and faster and with more energy uh, than I have the, since I can remember. I mean, the Real Life Rock Top 10 column has always been monthly except for a couple of years when it was every two weeks for Salon. But for, you know, 10, 15 years, it's been monthly. And I've been writing it every two weeks now. Oh, great. I've already written, I've been writing for uh, under two months for Substack, and I've written four real-life rock columns, along with lots of other stuff. I'll subscribe. I, I had no idea. Yeah. That's exciting. So this guy says, finally, when I talk to him, he says, you know, there's a, there's a charge on my account right. for $50, and I and it says, you know, and I called up Chase, and they said it was it was a charge to me, and... They gave him your number? That's crazy. I don't know. I have a listed phone number. Oh, okay. That's um, just weird. That and, and it said for writing, and I'm still sort of suspicious, and I said, well, it could be that you subscribe to a Substack account. Yeah. Because that's $50 for a year's subscription. Um, and he says, yeah, that's exactly it. And I said, okay, well, this is real. And thank you for subscribing, you know, all well, that. Well, then there we go. We've solved the mystery. Yeah, <laughs> just like that. Of this uh, angry caller. Anyway, yeah, so, um, so I'm Jagger. walking up the hill yeah. at Altamont, and um, it, it's pitch dark, and um, and, and it's, it, it's muddy and, and big chunks of dirt and you can't see anything and I tripped and I fell face down and I'm lying there in the dirt and listening to the Rolling Stones play Gimme Shelter and feeling it's the most powerful, gorgeous thing I've ever heard in my whole life. And I just lay there until the song was over and then I got up and I walked back to my car which had been broken into and the windows smashed and the radio stolen and my re reaction to that was yeah that makes sense <laughs> that was the that was the probably you got right. off cheap you got off cheap yeah, that's, that's, all. that's the way this day should end yeah, <laughs> sure free tickets the the famous last words that's and that was 60 69 9 so that's when it was like so i walk into a record store the next month in Berkeley, a record store I always went to, and for some reason I see this Robert Johnson album that has a song on it called Four Until Late, and I looked at the liner notes and I said who this person was, and I thought, oh, that's a Cream song, Four Until Late, you know, maybe I should know where Cream songs come from. So I took that record home and I played it, and 
was just overwhelmed and I played it and I played it and then I went back. Was it just the four four till the four until late? Was it just a single of that or no, was it the it whole was the album King of the Delta Blues right, thing? Right. That was one of the tracks on it. And then I went back to the record store and I bought all the old country blues records they had, which was a lot, because Origin Jazz Library, the label that was dedicated to country blues from the 20s and 30s was located in Berkeley. And um, Berkeley was one of the homes of the country blues cult. And they had everything. And I that's what I listened to. And that's what I learned about. And that's what I cared about and still do. It's, it, and it's, it's wild to me also how you know the cliche of blues being old men and yet the the kind of prime motor of interest in the blue, of the revival of interest in the blues in the 60s and and you know therefore beyond was a 20 a man who died at the age of 27 well you know all these people were in their in their 20s maybe early 30s skip james sunhouse charlie patton was older was in his 40s um, but they, none of them were old. They just sounded like, they sound you know, they, they sounded like they'd lived so many lives yeah. uh, and knew so much and had seen too much. Uh, and, the, you know, the, the, there, the, there is this sense of, of time passing in, in the old blues. One of the couplets <clears throat> that travels from song to song probably comes from sometime in the 19th century, but it is, it's just a little piece of blues poetry that doesn't belong to anybody. I went and climbed on that high, high, lonesome hill, and I looked down at the house where I used to live. And there's just a whole world of exile and tragedy and wandering and um, escape and so much more in, in those two lines. The house where I used to live, I looked down, down on it, you know. Yeah. I would never go there. And you, you wonder what, what happened in that house. And what's he thinking about? Because he's thinking about everything that he lived and experienced in, in that house. And that house is a, a talisman for him now. It's either a talisman of a place he can never go back to and a life he will never regain, um, or it's a place of unspeakable evil where terrible things happen and he's just lucky to be alive and to have escaped it. You know, you don't know. Yeah. But a line like that just um, is philosophy, is, is a picture of life, is, is a, a map of the world. It also seems to be a picture of, uh, of America, uh, of, Amer of the American consciousness, because we seem ever to be in this position and it's reinforced to me reading Invisible Republic. I'm sorry if I keep calling it Invisible Republic the original title. Yeah, yeah, well, I don't know what to call it. <laughs> it's now called that 
old weird America. Yeah. The original title, though, is incredibly. It, it's it was t- speaking of you know signs. We had just turned. We had just changed the title of my latest movie, a documentary about an unrecognized territory under attack right now called uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, an, an Armenian, an old Armenian homeland which Azerbaijan thinks belongs to Azerbaijan. And we decided to change the original. It's, there was a war there two years ago for 44 days. It's really ongoing now as they're trying to wipe out all the Armenians from it. And we changed the title from 44 days to Invisible Republic. Next day I walked to my nearby used bookstore, Counterpoint on Franklin Avenue. I don't know if you've, you're aware. Sure. Yeah, I, uh, it's my, I go, I'm, that's my um, down-home records in a way. It's not nearly as special necessarily, but I always come out with a bunch of stuff. No, I, I know Franklin. Yeah. <coughs> I go there, I see, I, I, I see you, you, oh, cop, and I, I was already preparing to speak to you, but I didn't know about this particular volume, and I see an Invisible Republic, like real Marcus, what the hell is oh, this? Oh, really? So we both came up with that title independently. Independent, completely independently. Huh. That's the part that's so spooky. I mean, yeah. I, I, I was, I, I, uh, and then I saw it, as soon as I saw it, I said, I, I texted my friend, this, this, this title doesn't, this title exists, but it, it only reinforced our decision to roll with it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so it, I, Have you made the movie? Is yes, it? it just came, we just released it in a rush, rushed manner because of the, the crisis is kind of reaching a boil, boil yeah. point over there. It's on virtual cinema. I'll send you, if you're able to watch Connect, through, I'll send you the, the screener for that it. That would be great. Yeah. I, I originally wanted to call the book The Old Weird America, and neither of my editors in, in London or New York liked it. So I sat down and I wrote up a, a list of about 20 different titles, and Invisible Republic was just one of all these different titles. They both liked it. They both liked that so one. So that became the title of the book. Well, that's, well, maybe there's some magic to the title because, uh, I yeah, I mean, you know, in our case, it's it's it re- it was inspired by the fact that this is an unrecognized republic sure. and 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 also an unrecognized people and all and in many ways they cro- the meanings cross over, especially as I was reading it, you know, now, um, and. Uh, in many profound ways, the meetings cross over. But my my point was was that this idea of being of standing on a hill and saying, either this house was all, was a, was a, the house you're looking down upon was the greatest the greatest hits of your life, or it's this place of unspeakable evil that you escaped from, appears to define the uh, the constant binary of uh, uh, of American. Uh, Political consciousness of American historical of, of this weird kind of this endless civil war uh, in, in the mind of Americans, where we're we're looking at the past either as this horrible, horrible thing that must be escaped, American America, or as you know this the, this idol that can never be retained again, the the the, the, the this golden the gold the olden golden days that can never be retained again, and that's its own tragedy. And, and it seems to be so central to, to uh, what it means to be angry in this country. Um, and I'm worried now that the thing that informs, the thing that I think, um, well, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, but the thing that, the thing that, that really 
lends grace and glory to this to the past, which in the in the case of the music you discovered, thirty for forty music you discovered about fifty years after it was made, for 30, 40, 50 years, whatever, the cut in nineteen seventy. Um, I myself discovering all this, you know, whatever hodgepodge of music, beginning with the beginning with the basically 60s, 70s, and going backwards 30, 40 years after. Um, I wonder if that can happen anymore. Because I look at people my age or younger, and for the most part, especially younger, especially under 30, for the most part, there seems to be a massive disconnect from any even possibility of discovering something from the past. This is a disconnect that I fight against, but it's something that concerns me, and it's something that I am doubly concerned about when I see that the you know the present stars don't appear to be carrying any traditions with them. Um, I don't know that you know I I don't think Beyonce is leading anyone to Etta James, for example. Which is weird, since she played. She literally Etta played Etta James, and yeah. she was really good. You know, she was good in that movie. Yeah, oh, she was the only one of the only good things in that. When movie. when kind of when she gets angry with Leonard Chess, um, or when you know he's berating her in the studio, and she gets furious at him, and she and but she just sucks it all in. I mean, she does say "fuck you." Right. What do you know about the blues? Right. Um, but she's completely convincing, both as an actress and, and as a singer. Uh, I am, am just shocked that none of that finds its way into her own music. Right. You know? this, was, this was a movie role, and she was good. How come she hasn't had any other movie roles? She had that one in Pink Panther, but that was yeah, I mean, before that, though. I don't know, maybe it has to do with money. It I does mean, have so to many do. people make so much money that um, they live in their own worlds. It's not impinged on by anything or anybody. Um, they're not citizens anymore. You know, they're, they're potentates. Yeah, it's kind of like LeBron James. Yeah, it, there's a there is no, a, but LeBron James acts as a citizen. He engages in public life. He takes stands on issues. He creates um, institutions in Cleveland. Um, you know, whether it's youth centers or elderly centers, uh, he, you know, his his money is. In the community, and he is a and he is a public figure, you know. When uh, Donald Trump disinvited the Warriors from coming to the White House after they won their first championship, um, their first recent championship, right. and LeBron LeBron James said uh, he tweeted, "It used to be an honor to go to the White House." until you got there. Um, no, I don't think LeBron James is like that at all. Well, he gets, I guess, uh, the thing I, uh, I mean, not to get into the big about LeBron James, but because he doesn't sing the blues, but uh, as far as I'm aware, but he, but I do think that Cleveland is where his, 
Cleveland is what, what where where he should have stayed in my completely meaningless opinion. Um, and I think that Cleveland is where he gets. Cleveland is what gives him his gravitas and his involvement in Cleveland and his and the fact that as being a mythical kind of he should have been to Cleveland what Kobe was to LA. I feel um, as a meaningful person uh, and a meaning and a, and a character and a hero. Um, and I find like I find his dabbling around Miami and LA and I'm a Lakers I'm an LA person but I don't you know I'm over it by now <laughs> I'm just over it I, I I quit with Kobe and I didn't want to deal with their stupid uh, nepotism owners and everything um, I just feel like there's something Beyonce like about this cor- this this nat- yeah I mean yeah, Beyonce also sings for the Democrat party but what does that mean I mean it just means that she's a power she's a she's basically a, a, a national global power it doesn't necessarily mean that she's an active citizen because she's not. What 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 specific act of, you know, what specific co- cause is she throwing her weight behind? Herself. It, herself. I another thing. And Rihanna's. I loved some of the songs by Rihanna. Rare a departure, you know, in like a, my departure toward new music, but she doesn't sing anymore. She she sells stuff on sells on stuff on QVC or whatever, and I'm just thinking like, well, I like people who have to sing or else they die, like Amy like I, I like I assume Amy Winehouse would have been had she survived long enough to be rich, beyond you know, I would assume Amy Winehouse would have kept singing. I could be wrong. I don't. I I mean I don't. <clears throat> I I can't get into the mindset of judging people's personal choices you know um, I, I don't and I won't I mean I just don't have the proclivity to do it right but I also think it's wrong right so even if I did I would fight against it right um, well I'm judging from I'm trying to understand why I prefer Etta James this might be my, I'm kind of coming around to that to that and what my preference is I don't mean prefer in the for me personally but I just mean I got to see the part what make what makes the music matter to me is that it is something you can sing forever and this was demonstrated to me by watching 70 and 80 year olds perform concerts in my yeah. teens and that that is what that's just what defined my interest in music and so when I see people retiring at 32 and I don't begrudge I mean, I'm sure if Robert Johnson made a billion dollars at 28, I'm sh- I don't know that he would have been so you know performing at 20 at 29. You know, I'm like I don't I don't have moral superiority. I don't like assume any kind of moral superiority between people in imaginary universes that never existed. I'm just you know I'm just looking at the facts as they are, and I'm saying that well whatever for whatever reason Etta James had to sing until she died until she was performing with Alzheimer's at one point. And for whatever other reason, we're already talking about Beyonce like she's, you know, she's the queen of Monaco. Well, we don't know if Etta James was performing because she had to perform or because she needed the money. Oh, no, that's what I mean. She may have very well needed the money. You know? And this is the only way she could get, she could make it. She could get it. Do you think B.B. King needed the money? I mean, he seemed to be performing because he just could not stop performing the way Woody Allen can't stop making movies. Well, I think he loved to do it. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it, but I don't think it was a matter of, um, 
self-redemption or self-congratulation, which is, I think, why Woody Allen makes movies. I don't think B.B. King was out there trying to get people to um, say how great he was. Did, did you enjoy... What, what's your relationship with B.B. King while we're on the topic? Because um, I haven't seen you write about him much. No. He, mean, he, was an, he was an entryway to the blues for me, but uh, there were people who, who moved me far more, his contemporaries, like Bobby Bland. I love Bobby meant Bland. much more to me than B.B. King did. I heard B.B. King first. Um, and he was much more of a showman than Bobby Bland was. But, um, you know, he, he was an artist on a, another level for me, Bobby Bland. I love Bobby Bland. I wanted yeah. to talk about Bobby Bland because he's always, every, the minute I, the very first time I heard his voice come through K-Jazz, through K, KLON at the time, I don't remember the song, I just remember the voice. And, and I remember my dad had a bias against him because of his more recent growl effect that he's instituted a snorting effect in the songs, which I don't care for either. But his voice to me is like this um, synthetic, this synthesis of soul, blues, doo-wop, fifties, everything all in this one voice. Bing Crosby, everything. Everything yeah. is in that voice. I love okay. Let's do. I want to nerd out on Bobby Bland for a bit because I think he's another name kind of lost to the lost. Yeah, you know who knows who Bobby Blue. He's one of one of my on 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 the UCLA sports message board. I subscribe to. I'm a sports person. Going, you know, infected as a child. Uh, uh, my my um, my uh, handle is Blue Bland. <laughs> so. And nobody knows why the hell it's called. Yeah. Now he was great in the 50s. He was great in the 60s and the 70s. Um, I somehow failed to go <clears throat> see him live. I had a couple chances and I just missed it. That was that. Yeah, I saw him. It was it was a, at a blues club in Oakland. And it was a pretty standard blues show where his band would play for 20 minutes. Yeah. And then he would come on, and he would sing, and he was beautiful. And then he left, and the band played for twenty minutes, and the show was over. Yeah. Was there what? Are there any particular tracks you you listen to still with uh, special relish? Um. You know, his songs are so indelible for me. I don't really have to play them you, you know just hear them. two steps from the blues take my hand um, um, it, it's my life baby um, you know I just I just hear them I love his rendition his counterintuitive rendition of going down slow I don't know if you would, you agree or disagree, but the but the way he turns that that kind of encapsulates my relationship to the entire genre, where the way he turns going down slow into this like victory march, which I'm sure some people would dismiss as completely missing the point yeah. of that, you know, deathly so somewhat deathly song, but it's a defiant song too, and he 
He seems to capture, he has this insouciance, is that how you pronounce that word? Yeah. About dying. Oh, well, it is, a, but it is a defiant song. Yeah. You know? Um, and Willie Dixon does a lot of the talking in the Howlin' Wolf version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? um, Tired, heavy voice. And did not say I was a millionaire. Yeah, for that. Spent more money. Money than yeah. a millionaire. <laughs> so it's completely defiant. Yeah. I'm going down slow and I'm not there yet. Yeah. In, in fact, you know. It's not dark yet. I'm not going. Oh no, it's not dark yet. It's like I can't wait for it to get dark. Right. Oh, that's Bob's. That's Bob's for. Well, I'm saving Bob for last. I, I've been saving, saving, saving. Um, yeah, that's not. It's not. You're not. It doesn't sound like he's going. If you if you're gonna if you're crunched on time, please let me no, know. No, I'm so not. I, but I'm. I get tired. No, yeah. Please. Anyway, uh, um, I'll move to Bob soon because he's this looming immense figure, and I want and, and you, you ever heard. The show he did with Etta James. Bob Dylan did a show with Etta James? Mm-hmm. No. Is this exist in record form? or in Not in record form. You YouTube. can find it online. Okay, I have to find it. What, can, what's, what, what is, what, how did that happen? I don't know, but they're, they're ripping it up. Oh, my God. When was this? By what decade? I think it was in the 80s. 80s, okay. I have to find it. I hope there's a video. I'll find it online. Oh, yeah. I have oh, not yes. taken her out, yes, obviously. She's a great watchdog. You can tell any she's, person who comes in the house. Well, she just knows. She already has her. Detection. But she had a successful time this morning. soundboard oh my gosh okay well I'll put that I'll just look Ed James Bob Dylan will come yeah, right up. up perfect well he she did sing uh, gotta serve somebody around that I guess yeah the I mean what the hell she also said that very funny anti-feminist song from that decade. I can't get the volume up. I wonder if they slept with each other. worth listening to. Yeah, I will definitely listen to it. If, if you don't mind, I'm just going to move the phone because it sometimes interferes with the signal sure. um, from the, my mic. Um, so, okay, but before Bob, while I'm going down the list, um, this, yeah, so the, while I'm going down the list, I've got, I've got to touch upon someone that, another person who just like captured me and I saw him several times live despite the comically poor uh, sound quality of his live shows was Leon Russell 
Hey, do you have any relate? Do you have any connection with Leon Russell as a figure, as a pianist, as the Shelter Man or the Master of Space and Time? No, I mean he was never a factor for me. I did, I did like the version of Masters of War he did to the tune of the Star Spangled Banner, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty amazing. I have to find that. It's called Old Masters, and it's a, a track. On one of his albums, it was it was originally there, then it was taken off, and then when the album was reissued, it was there again. And when I heard the Roots do Masters of War to um, the the tune of the Star Spangled Banner, it was a, a Bob Dylan tribute concert on the occasion of the release of Todd Haynes' movie, I'm Not There, mm-hmm. and the Roots were playing, and they were great, and um, they did Masters of War this way, and I, I was just so stunned by it, and I mentioned it to somebody, and they said, oh, Leon Russell did that, and I ended up talking to Questlove, and I said, did, did you know that Leon Russell record? And he said, oh, sure. Like, I know every record. Right. And um, so he, they took it from that. He also did a, he also did a, for his own Masters of War called Ballad of a Soldier, which in the parentheses of the title says Masters of War, even though the lyrics have, and the melody are totally different. I don't no, know. I didn't know that. Yeah. One of, it's in his, like, you know, from his prime recordings. I don't know why it has Masters of War... I don't know why it's his Masters of War when neither the title nor neither the words nor it is about, of course, it's about similar subject matter. Yeah. It's a protest song. No, I mean I I like his piano on watching the river flow. Oh, I love it. Um, but I, I was never a big follower. I like his piano in BB King's Hummingbird. Mm-hmm. I like his piano anytime I hear his piano. I don't and he and in his live performances in his latter years before Elton John rescued him. He, he, they were so poorly, he was like on 19, it was like a first edition app, Apple laptop that he's mixing on or whatever. Mm-hmm. It sound, the mix is an absolute shit show, unlike the likes of which, but I still loved it because it was like, this, it's like you're watching a carnival band barreling through, playing small little clubs, uh, little rinky-dink uh, nightclubs. I mean, I saw him in Long Beach, I saw him at the Malibu Inn um, on PCH, that was the first time. And I was just mesmerized by him. I don't know. There was something about him that seemed was the eternal American yop to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but the real, the kind of, yeah, the BB. Uh, so the, the 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 man who won my heart first after I had, in my ignorance, kind of dismissed him in my youthful ignorance as a hippie protest singer as he is kind of you know at the time he was sort of in the you know folk in the popular history imagination that's kind of how he was explained to children um, but then after hearing some of the homeless people play his songs in, around UC Santa Barbara and Isla Vista where I was going to college my first two years I'm in the gas station by the handles and on the radio on the, on the classic rock station they played subterranean homesick blues and that's when I got started to take Bob Dylan seriously, and from there on, I you know I've become I've obviously I've listened to every almost everything until the ones I discovered only by reading your 
book of your entire writings on Bob Dylan, um, where for the first time you explained why I like watching River Flow, which is a lot, kind of a lost single, right? It's not in yeah. any album. It's probably on some albums. Some. I mean, it's on collections, and yeah. stuff, but it's not like it wasn't in one of the... Oh, no, it was a, it was a single. It was a yeah. single, yeah. And it's another song that speaks to my temperament in these last two years quite directly. Um, the, the, the desire, the, the kind of the disorientation from the river of life as it has dried up uh, since this pandemic began and the, 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 the kind of sitting on the sidelines of this great war of madness on, on coming from all directions. And a phrase that grabbed me when I read it in Invisible Republic was the mask, the mask that turns other people into cranks. I believe that's how you put it. Yeah. Um, as the big, as this like one of your big themes in that book, which is about the basement tapes, which is about the characters that are the the all the characters that come out in the folk songs of the basement tapes, um, which is a which is a res, which is a revival or a a renaissance of the folk of the folk record. What was the name of the record that they were passing around? Well, that it's based on. You know, I talk about Harry Smith's anthology of American folk music. And Dylan says, "Well, he, I make too much of that." But much. in fact, it was the lingua franca in in Dinky Town in Minneapolis and Greenwich Village uh, in the in the fifties and and sixties. It was it was the Bible. It was the dictionary. It's where you went. It's where you found stuff. It's where you heard stuff that made you say, well, I want to hear more about this. Right. I want to hear more from this person. Or I want to hear more of this kind of music. Where do I find it? Where do I go? Your first Dylan concert was a major experience, uh, as you describe it in the book. Correct? Yeah, and it wasn't a Dylan concert. It was a Joan Baez concert. It was a Joan Baez. Can you just, can you, can you describe... Uh, what, this was 65? No, it was 63. 63. Um, I mean, I've told this story lots of times, but it really is central because, you know, I remember it so well. Uh, I was living in Philadelphia that summer, mm-hmm. and I was um, um, I had a girlfriend who I wanted to impress. And so there was this Joan Baez concert in New Jersey, not very far away. And so I said, you know, let's go. I see her all the time in Menlo Park, where I was from, which was an exaggeration, but you did see her in Menlo Park, um, you know, sitting in a field across the street from your house, singing with her sister or whatever. She was around. You know, she was not a obscure person or a celebrity either. Anyway, I, I want to say, you know, let, let's go to this concert. And so we go, and we're sitting there, and at a certain point she says, I want to bring out a friend of mine. I want to introduce a friend of mine. And this guy comes out, and he looks sort of embarrassed, shy, like, I don't really want to be here. Mm-hmm. And she obviously said his name, but I didn't catch it. I wasn't really paying attention. 
and he starts singing and he's may I don't remember how many songs he sang or in what order but at one point he sings um, with God on our side and I'm just riveted I'm just struck you know uh, he is rewriting what you learned in school you know what you learned in any American public school in the 1950s American history he, he is just rewriting it he is pulling it inside out and and so he he is working with knowledge that everybody to whom this song is addressed has because in those days everybody went to public school it was very unusual people went to private schools like what's wrong with them because yeah. they had some problem they got Right, you it's know, still sort of like that. <laughs> um, everybody went to public school, rich people, poor people, it didn't matter. Um, and, you know, you read American history textbooks and you, you learned about different wars and, you, and all different kinds of stuff. Um, but you basically learned the same thing all over the country. And he's rewriting that. He's, he's casting all of this in a different life, a light. He's turning it upside down. And I'm absorbing this as I'm listening, line by line. And when the song is over, it feels like I've memorized the whole song. You know, not by trying to, it's just there. And I, I was dumbstruck. How did this, how did you do this? How did, he, how did this happen? What happened? So after the show, which was in this theater in the round in a field in New Jersey. Um, I see this guy squatting in the dirt trying to light a cigarette. And behind the tent, the show was on. And, he, and it's windy, and he, you know, the match keeps blowing out, and he's frustrated. So I go up to him and I say, you know, blankly, you were really great. And he says, and, and this is what I could never forget. He says, no, I was shit. I was just shit. And that was just as amazing too. You know, someone who, who couldn't take a compliment that in his mind wasn't deserved So as soon as I got back to uh, Menlo Park, which was about a week later, two weeks later, I went to a record store and I said I wanted an album by Bob Dylan because mm -hmm. I asked somebody after I talked to him. I said, "I said, who is that?" And the guy said, "Oh, he's, he's Bob Dylan." <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bob Dylan. And I got the free wheel and Bob Dylan. I took it home. And I put it on, and the, the songs it had didn't match the songs that were listed on the album. You know, there are a whole bunch of different songs and a bunch of songs that weren't there. Oh, interesting. Um, which turned out to be this... And I, I went back to the guy, I brought the record back, and I said, this album is no good, it has the wrong songs on it. He said, oh yeah, we had a lot of complaints. Come back next week, and I'll have some, you know some new new copies. So I took the record back home, but by then I was really getting to like it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't. I never brought it back again. 
it turned out that there were about 400 copies released with songs that weren't supposed to be on the album. In other words, it was a mistaken release. And they became, you know, incredibly valuable. Um, And if if I had not played this album to death, which I did, it wasn't until I played it and played it and played it that it didn't sound good anymore. I went and got another copy and I found out, oh, I never... What, oh, I never heard this. That um, I found out there was anything different in my record than anybody else's record. And if I had not played it, if I'd kept it in a shrink wrap, maybe played it once and put it back, and if I hadn't scribbled on the album cover what I thought the names, you know, crossing out this song and right. trying to write in what I figured was the title of the other song, be worth fifty thousand dollars, but <laughs> collecting is all about the condition. Yeah, you of can't the use your supply. You can't artifact. get high in your own supply. So um, mine isn't really worth very much. But at it's all. still your. But it should be worth a lot because it's your album, well, and, and you are the most foremost Bob Dylan whisperer. Well, I've got. I've still got it. You still got it. Well, oh, sure. I think it should be worth. I mean, you know. I think it's 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 because this is yours is one of a kind. The other three hundred ninety nine, who knows, you know, if there any have survived in in BC. Oh yeah, there. What are the so- what were the songs on it? Were they were what were the mistaken songs? Well, one was called Ramblin' Gamblin' Willie, you know, about this gambler who's free and nobody can tie him down. Mm-hmm. One was Rocks and Gravel, which is an old UU Top Phillips song, which he did with a band. Mm-hmm. Um, a real band, you know, drums. I'm not a rock and roll band, but a string band with drums. Mm-hmm. And um, um, another was um, Karina Karina, also with a band, um, and, and one other song, um, Let Me Die in My Footsteps, an anti fallout shelter song. And are these? I'm assuming these are these were released on later on in other other compilations or whatever. Yeah, I, I'm. I guess so. Yeah. I'm not sure where Ramblin' Gamblin' Willie is and Rocks and Gravel. Mainly, maybe on the first bootleg series mm-hmm. issue. Did did this? So I I meant to ask you ultimately. What it is that moved you to be what you became? What what it is that moved you to be a writer and an, in many ways, kind of an inhabitant of rock and roll, uh, of rock. Well, criticism to me is, a, is as shallow as it would be to describe what David Thompson does as criticism, because to me David Thompson has 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 written this like lifelong novel about the movies, um, in which he brings them to novelistic life and in which he brings the experience of watching them uh, into novelistic life. And you do the same with music. You do a similar thing with music. You listen to the songs as if they're, as if they're not mere songs, but they're, they're entire histories. They're, they're, they're movies, they're histories, they're stories, they're uh, myths. Um, I mean, you, have, you, you breathe a life into them that, that it would not be there if you weren't for you. Yeah, well... <clears throat> I always loved to write. I always wrote. Um, 
a lot of my college papers were very ambitious just in terms of writing, just in terms of not following the form of a college paper. I read Pauline Kael in 1966. I read I, I Lost at the Movie, at the movies, and I found out that, you know, writing about a movie, you could write about anything at the same time. You kind of had to. If you really wanted to capture what this movie was and where, where it was in the culture you were living and how it connected to you, why it connected to you, if it did, um, you, you had to draw on absolutely everything. Uh, you had to know a lot. You, you know, you had to be an educated person. You had to have read all kinds of stuff. You had to have seen movies. You had to have listened to music. You had to have read novels. Um, you, you, you had to... Your mind had to be constantly alive. It was absolutely thrilling to read her. And my reaction as a reader was... I wonder what it would feel like to be as alive, to feel as alive as she has to feel writing this stuff, you know. Um, and so that was a, a great inspiration. And when Rolling Stone started, I was reading it, and I bought a record that wasn't what it was advertised to be, and I felt I was ripped off. So I wrote a review and I sent it into Rolling Stone and they printed it. And I thought, well, this isn't very hard. <laughs> so I kept, Do you remember the record? Yeah, it was the, by The Who called um, Magic Bus and The Who on Tour. And so it presented itself as a live album. And all Who fans wanted a live Who album because they you know, had seen the band and they knew that however great their records were, they didn't kick, come close to what a Who show was. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was going to be a live album. It was a bunch of B-sides and tracks they weren't good enough to release. It was just a jumble. And I felt, you know, really ripped off. Um, so I was writing reviews for Rolling Stone. And after a while, Jan Wenner and I had met in 64 when we were both at Cal. Um, so I was, you know, we were old acquaintances anyway at that point. And he made me the records editor, which they had never had before, an editor just um, to create a really great record review section. So I became an editor. And then he created an editorial board of four people to really plan and what the magazine was, what it was for, where it was going, and I was one of the four people on that board. Um, so I was very involved. Then I got fired. Um, what for? Um, I think Jan felt the paper was slipping away from him, and that, and that there were people whose voices were too loud. Um, and he needed to take the paper back. I think that's ultimately what it was about. There are a lot of other reasons or explanations I could give you, but I think that was pretty much it. Um, in any case, 
I had been in graduate school all this time. I always intended to become a professor. I had had great, great professors, and they were inspiring too. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to inspire people the way they inspired me. And and it seemed to me that this is before I found out what feet of clay all of them had in their own different ways. Um, but except for one, except for one who I became very close friends with. But it, and at that point I was, you know, finished my coursework and I'd taken my orals and um, had to start work on my dissertation. And I was given the chance to teach an honors seminar, American Studies, class I had taken when I was a sophomore at Cal that really w was my entree into the world of, of culture. Um, that's, that's the class that put me on the road that I've followed ever since. Um, it was a fantastic class with great professors, small, small seminar, closely knit people. I could go on for hours about yeah. that class and what made it so great. But in any case, here I am in graduate school in 1971, and I'm given the chance to teach that class. It's offered to me, and they, it had never been taught by a graduate student. It was always taught by either a professor from English, political science, or history. But they offered me the chance to teach it. I was so honored. I was so thrilled. I'm already a professor. That's you know. how it felt. And so I taught that course for a year, and I was absolutely terrible at it. I was an awful teacher. I hated it. I hated doing it. I hated myself. Um, and I realized that I couldn't spend the rest of my life doing something I didn't like and wasn't good at. And at that point, I was writing for Cream very, very actively. And that, that was the only other thing I knew how to do, was write, be a journalist. So I did that. And, but at the same time, I started Mystery Train. It's kind of like the dissertation I didn't write. Right, yeah, it feels that. Except the dissertation was going to be about Melville and Lincoln, not right. who were in there, you know. Yeah. They show up. As, are, as, does, as does Twain. Um, so that's what happened. That's a, yeah. And then 20 years later, I was offered the chance to teach at Princeton. And I thought, you know, maybe I'm ready to do it again, try it again. So I didn't teach for 20 years. And then I did started teaching at Princeton in 2000. Um, 2000. And I loved it, and I was good at it. And after that, you know, I taught at Princeton two more times. I taught at the New School for seven years. I taught at um, CUNY Graduate Center, and I taught at Cal every other year for about 20 years. And and how did you feel that? Um, how did you feel that your different the second time around teaching them. I mean, you're obviously a wealth of 
more experience. Oh, one year's more thinking. It's very simple. At the start, I had no patience, um, and I and I was injured, and I talked too much, and I wasn't hearing what other people were saying. And a teacher who has no patience and who can't listen to students is not a teacher. It just not can't do it. Teaching is all about patience. It's all about keeping your mouth shut, listening to what other people say. You know, I learned teaching a sem uh, teaching seminars at, at Princeton because that's all I taught at Princeton. I gave I taught did a lot of lecture classes at Cal and at the new school. I taught both a seminar and a lecture class, which I love giving lectures. But I learned in a seminar, if, if there's an idea that is absolutely central and necessary to the subject that's being discussed, that just has to come out, and, and, and you, you, you know, it, it will be, the whole thing will miss the point if this idea or this quotation or whatever it might be doesn't come up. If I can just keep my mouth shut, within five minutes, some student will make the point, will start the <laughs> argument. It'll happen. It'll happen. So just keep your mouth shut because, you know, a professor intervening in a seminar so often can just kill the discussion. Oh, the wise person has spoken. Right. No, you're there to listen. You're not there to, you're not there to tell people stuff. So, Bob Dylan doesn't need the money, but he decided, it seems, in the 80s, if we are to take the, maybe, maybe the real story is earlier, but as he kind of recounts it in Chronicles and so on, there was a bit of an impasse in the 80s where um, he had to, he, he had to, he was completely lost. It seemed like the, the, uh, fortification of his newfound faith had slipped away, had, had crumbled away a little bit. As you note, it was the song um, Blind Willie McTell, where he kind of reveals how he had hit the ceiling of his faith. Um, which I thank you entirely for making me listen to, because I don't think I'd ever listened to it. And I think it's the take five that's the one you're writing about in your book. Well, I don't know. It's a rehearsal with Mark Knopfler. There's one that's... There's a, two versions out there. One of them is a little bit smooth. And this one is not... And then there's one that's not smooth at all. No, this is just a rehearsal. Mm -hmm. um, it's on the Bootleg Series Volume 1 to 3, that okay. first set. That's when I first heard it. That's when everybody yeah. first heard it. I think it says take. There, I think it says take five in the title versus the one that just says outtake in the title of the song well, on a spot. I don't. I don't yeah. know. There are other versions. He recorded with a band, at least twice. Mm -hmm. Once with Mick Taylor, which isn't bad, but it doesn't touch the. Well, then I wonder if I've even heard of the, the, the right one. I'll, I'll, I'll send you and maybe you can confirm with, if, if I've heard the proper one or if I haven't. But anyway. Sure. That, the, that song is, a, that's an incredible song that he, that was left off of Infidels because it was probably too much, uh, too, too heavy for what was ultimately a kind of... I don't know, might have shown how crummy the other songs crummy <laughs> showed up the rest of the show. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, when you steal your own show, 
Um, and he seemed to be lost. And, you know, he just, I don't, I don't, I haven't read Chronicles in years, but he described a kind of this. Yeah, sure. I know what you mean. Yeah. Where he discovered he kind of had to perform forever. Uh, it seemed to me, and he discovered how to do it, which was to keep me, something to do with endless mathematical variations of his songs that would deprive him of the need to be emotionally invested. In yeah, I, you know, he must like it on the road. There's no other explanation. He likes playing for people. Sometimes he's good, sometimes he isn't. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are nights when he wants to put on the best show of his life, and it's awful. You know, you can't control these kinds of things. Um, but there's no other reason that, you know, this keeps him alive as a person, as an, as an artist. He has to do it. He wants to do it. My impression when I... Now, I really liked his last album. Um, I don't know if you... I don't think you'd liked it as much, or maybe you were more... You know, 50, I remember reading your review, but you seem more... Well, well, let's recover it. The rough and rowdy ways. What's your... Well, ultimately, there were there were two songs that I went back to over and over again. One is Key West, right. which is just so beautiful. It made me want to visit, and I did. What? It made me want to visit, and I did. Oh. <laughs> I went to Key but West. But it, it's just so beautiful, and, and it's so sad and painful, and such is life, the way he says that. You know, he just, yeah. nothing you can do. And um, Murder Most Foul, yeah. you know, which is, I, I think it's just this great event as well as a great song. Um, I love his endless songs. He, he could have gone on for another 20 minutes yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Um, just naming records, you know, play this, play that. Right, yeah. Um, the other songs, you know, ones that I, at first seemed pretty good dried up for me and there were other songs that I thought were always pretty bad mm-hmm. or not really songs you know Goodbye Jimmy Reed and and um, what is the song that comes right after it um, um, there's one about Gauntlet there's the there's um, I can find it right now because I have it pretty near to hand um I, it felt to me, I, I, walk, I listened... Well, the one about, you know, the one about World War Two and, you know, Led Presley to sing and all of this. Right, that, right. It, it's so poorly sung, it's so poorly written, it's just a bad song. Oh, that's the, um, yeah, that, that's the, uh, I don't know why it's being so slow to come up. Overall, as an album, I would listen to, there was I Contain Multitudes, False Prophet... My own version of you. I think that's the one where he talks about. I like know. that. I liked it too, and I like when he says, "I'm going to make you pay the piano like Leon Russell." Yeah, I like that song. It, it's fun. It's loose. You Mother know? of Muses, maybe is the one you're. Thinking. Yeah, Mother of Muses. I think it's just awful, but um, <clears throat> you know, certainly with Murder Most Foul. I mean, he's having a great time writing that song. Yeah. It it it's not just because it's funny. And a lot of it is funny, but because, you know, he just, he can do anything in this song. I mean, just the, I, I like to think of it, the arc of his career, as he starts out 
writing a song about Emmett Till. And he ends up, at least for the time being, writing a song about JFK. And you've got somebody with absolutely no power, the least powerful person in the United States, a 14-year-old black boy in Mississippi in 1955, and the most powerful person in the world, John F. Kennedy in 1963. And both of them can be killed at any time for any reason. And, and to me, you know, that's the arc of his career from 1962 to um, 2020. And this album... Those two songs... Those two songs cover the... Knit, knit everything together. And, and there's a sense in which his, that this album is, is to the pandemic. It came out in June 2020 or something, or no, about, a, a no, little earlier. No, it came out in... Um, it came out in March, I think. March, right. Just before the, the pandemic hit and everything closed sure, up. Right. So right on the money. Yeah. Just I mean, as Love and Theft came out... Nine ten? No, nine eleven. Nine eleven itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He has good timing. He's got amazing timing, and I did nothing but walk around Hollywood. I lived in Little Armenia, uh, by Los Feliz, and I walked. I just would walk and hours listening to this album over and over and over again on the desolate streets um, of of Hollywood. But see, the thing is, in the beginning, he he wanted to. He wrote a song about Emmett Till. You know, was down in Mississippi not so long ago. He's writing this in 1962, and Emmett Till was killed in 1955. Um, but he was going to write it in the first person, mm. as if he were Emmett, Emmett Till. Till, and he was going to, you know, sing it as someone who is there and is being murdered, and then after he's dead, he's going to sing the song in the first person. And Murder Most Foul is sung in the first person. He is JFK. Yeah. Wait a minute, boys. Do you know who I am? You can't do this to me. Yeah. Yeah. So he did. He did. He 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 was able to finally to find his way to where he always wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I listened to, I went to see his concert at, at Pantages in June, um, where. Which is called Rough and Rowdy Ways, and it's mostly Rough and Rowdy Ways. And he had he had sprinkled a few others in there, including When I Paint My Masterpiece, which I had never heard to that point, and I did not know it was the band's song. Um, well, it's his song. Well, it's his song. Okay, yeah. but they but they made they recorded it. They recorded the first version, I think. No, no, no. Oh, no. He recorded it first, and they recorded it after Robbie Robertson had left. Oh, okay. And they were, you know, stumbling on with. A new guitar player and um, a new somebody else, a new bass player. I felt like he had he was when he's out, and it was a great show. It was the, probably the best of his that I've seen. I've seen him maybe five times, something like that. Um, and the previous one was good too. The one I saw him at the Kodak Theater, where he he had simplified things, and it was I think after. It was after he released Narrow Way, uh, Tempest, and it was 
while he was recording the uh, you know Sinatra records, but he had sort of he was more audible in that show than he had been in his previous show. Yeah, the the show I saw after Tempest was one of the best I've ever seen. Yeah, it was so expansive. It was just big. It was great. I heard he had put on a hell of a show at the uh, Palm Springs thing at the old at the uh, uh, Desert Trip. People have been telling me I didn't go. Yeah. They've been telling me it's one of his best concerts of all time. I don't know. Well, the sh- the Rough and Rowdy Ways show that he did here, I was in the hospital. Oh, damn. Not expecting to live, okay. so I didn't go we to that. Not, we couldn't make that one. No. Have you stayed... Well, for, okay, I'll, I want to ask you about this. Um, what is this thing with... with uh, what's her name? Joni Mitchell... This con- this thing where she talked about how Bob Dylan doesn't write songs. Told her he. Did. I know she claimed that L.A. Times had misquoted her when she called him a fake and he doesn't. His voice isn't real and all this, which may very well be true. But then she also claimed in her in her clarification, she was talking about how Bob Dylan told her that he hasn't written a song in decades and he just has this box of cl- newspaper clippings and references and he shakes the box and that's how that's how he comes up with these songs mm-hmm. and that seems to me like like. A complete wife's tale. What do you? What is going on here with this Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan thing? You have any idea? No, I don't care. Either. <laughs> okay. I never cared about Joni Mitchell. She was never a factor in my life. I I didn't like listening to her. I I do remember there was this, um, you know, the TV show Melrose Place. Oh yes. Well, my wife and I used to watch it, and there was one, um, there was one show where a guy's girlfriend is in a coma, and he's trying to find some way to, you know, rouse her from her coma, mm-hmm. and he's and he's brought a boombox into her hospital room, and he starts and he says, "I'm I'm betting you love Joni Mitchell as much as I do." And he puts on this Joni Mitchell song. And my wife says, Okay, okay, I'll wake up. Just stop playing that horrible music. <laughs> and that's sort of how I felt about Joni Mitchell. <laughs> I, I didn't get it and I didn't have time for it. Have you, stayed in, have you been in touch with him since Mr. Yeah. Dylan? Have you been in touch with Bob Dylan's in more recently? Oh, I don't know Bob Dylan. No. You no. Just, he kept a distance. He doesn't seem like he'd be very... Easy to, to easy with any anyone in the realm. Of well, I don't know. I I don't know. Him, yeah. You know. I met him. I mean, I met him once after that encounter in '63, but I don't know him. I've never interviewed him or anything like that. My takeaway from the show was that when you said he's you know he's keeping himself alive, I I felt like he was keeping the history of America of American music alive. Well, that's true. That's true. He's got a calling. He's got a mission. Sure. And I think that must be why he did the Sinatra <laughs> records. I mean, I, I think he he had he he felt like there was one thing he hadn't done in the American Well, those are camp. I think those are folk songs to him. Yeah. And they're they're and they come off that way, especially on Triplicate on that album. Which I haven't listened to, by the way. But well, I, you ought to. Yeah, I will. I will. I will. It's really good. But I had a kind of... There was a sense of peace when I left 
the show, Rough and Rowdy Ways, which I which I thoroughly enjoyed. It. I'd never seen, first of all, I'd never seen the audience be that engaged in the Bob Dylan of the five I'd been to. They were scream. You know, there was a lot of reaction. That's good because most Dylan shows I've seen in the last ten years have been, or twenty years have been close to unbearable because of the audience because they never shut up they never stop talking they never stop taking pictures or filming the whole show and you know so you're you're distracted by the light of their phones and right and um it's like they're at the zoo i've i've been i've been at doing shows where there would be a guy near me on the phone the entire time describing the concert to some friend you know, <laughs> now he's doing this and now he's doing that right. it's just awful god horrible but I, so I, I gotta yeah I gotta thank you so much wrap um, it up I really enjoyed this I could go on forever about oh, I'm really glad you came it was really fun to talk yeah I I I, I really love reading going through all your work um it, among, among everything else, it reminded me with a patriotic feeling that I hadn't had in a while. It feels good, that's what it's supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to be. the river flow